You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com. Okay, there we go. I, uh, they did that at the wedding the other day. I was like, oh yeah, I forgot about that little trick. So, but it's awesome to hear you guys uh, visiting and to get to know one another and encourage that, uh, continue on after service. Um, it is so good to come together as the body of Christ. And uh, if you're joining us online today for one reason or the other and uh, couldn't make it out, we're, we're so thankful that you're joining us on there as well. And uh, as Rory uh, challenged us, you could just let us know uh, that you're with us on the app or on the uh, platform you're watching from. Well, I want to just give a quick update uh, on uh, my time away in uh, Europe. Um, I left on a Thursday, got to Moldova on a Friday night, and uh, I hit the ground running Saturday, uh, met with the elders uh, from the church in Moldova, the church that we've been supporting now for, man, I think it's been seven years now. I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's, it's been a while. And uh, just a great time with the guys there, talking through the different challenges that they have. Um, it's interesting, you know, when you go to a different country, you start realizing, like, maybe everything we hear on the news isn't totally accurate. Um, first time I heard that, but, um, but, but there's a real struggle uh, that ha- is happening in Moldova, and specifically in the region where uh, our church is at there. Half of the people there would be very excited if uh, the Russians decided to invade. Uh, they, they, they have... Uh, believe that they've kind of been left out in regards to the rest of Europe, and um, it was better uh, for them when, when uh, Russia was over them. So it, it's just a weird dynamic. It's hard for us maybe to get our heads wrapped around, but that's just the reality. And even within the church, there can be some differing of opinions there. So um, just talking through how do, we, how do they remain united in, in, a, in a political environment like that? Sunday got to preach there. Uh, it was great to see uh, as many familiar faces as well as some new faces. And, uh, and then Sunday afternoon, uh, had some lunch, and then we drove uh, about eight hours uh, to uh, Brazov, Romania. Spent the night there. It was about an eight-hour drive. And um, we, uh, the next morning, went to a couple more hours to this called, a town called Birtan. It's, uh, it's a German community within Romania, and uh, there's a church there that was built in the 1300s. Uh, pretty cool to be at a, at a church that was built before the Reformation, and then see that it became one of those Reformed churches afterwards. And um, yeah, fascinating time with the guys there. So it was a senior pastor wives retreat. And so all the pastors from Romania and Moldova in the GCC and their wives were at this retreat. I spoke uh, five times over three days, uh, so it was uh, really restful, and uh, yeah, but it was, it was great. We really, I, I'm really encouraged by what God is doing in Romania, in Moldova, just some really godly men and women there, and uh, hearing stories of what God has been doing in their churches. One of the highlights was on the Thursday, just before I flew home, um, there I got to tour one of the churches in Cluj, and um, just a, really a God at work story, how God provided a space on a Saturday. The question was brought up on a Sunday whether or not they could uh, take in refugees and then a team from Spain wanting to come and help 
on Monday. You know, it was just like one thing after another where God was just providing. And so I got to see some of the space there where God has been uh, helping take care of this uh, crisis that's in the Ukraine and through God's love and care. So really a fantastic time. I literally was almost falling asleep on my feet before I flew home. Uh, so um, vacation was probably not as vacation-y as I would have liked, as I was pretty much out of it the entire time. But uh, it, was, it was good um, to, to be able to minister to the people there. I'm so thankful for your prayers, and just continue to pray for our brothers and sisters there. All right, well, let's get into the Word. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time uh, this morning, we have been studying the book of Esther. So thankful for the guys who've been preaching in my absence. Uh, this is week five of the text, and really we're hitting the turning point up to this point, it seems like be prideful and you will win, right? I mean, everything that we've seen thus far, uh, this man by the name of Haman, uh, he doesn't get what he wants, and guess what? He gets what he wants uh, he, he, through ruthless means. And as we think about this man, he really is the epitome of pride. And as we think about What's going to happen today, I'm reminded of what the text says in James, that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God is actively opposed to the proud. Continually is the wording there. Not just a, a one-off, but continually. Not just against guys like Hitler and Stalin and, and Napoleon, guys like that. It's, he's against the proud. Any kind of pride God is opposed to. And that is sobering, should be sobering for us. Uh, when I bring up the proud, how many of us were thinking about someone in our lives, you know, someone else? Yeah, yeah, I know a guy like that. He is so prideful. Well, guess what? In our hearts is pride. Uh, there, was a, there was a story. Uh, this guy, he was a, it's a newspaper cartoonist. His name is Webster. And he, he decided just for kicks, what he would do is he would send 20 telegrams to friends of his just randomly. And what he said in the, in the, in the uh, telegram was, congratulations. He had no idea whether there was something to congratulate them on or not, but he just sent congratulations. And guess what? All 20 people wrote back and said, thanks. Why? Well, they just assumed that they had done something worthy of congratulations. That's what we do in our pride. We like to think well of ourselves. We like to think highly of ourselves. And, and uh, this, uh, <laughs> this illustrates that very well. Of course, now we live in a world that only encourages our pride. Uh, the authority now in Canada is self. What do you think should be done? Look within you to find out your truth, to find out who you really are, and then the whole world should bow down before you and celebrate whatever you come up with. That is the epitome of pouring gasoline on the fire of pride in our lives. And we live in this culture. We live in this country, and we, if we think we're immune to that, we need to be on guard. This passage this morning that we're going to be reading is sounding off a warning that all who walk in pride will be humbled. And so as we get into the text, I want you just to consider, where's my heart at right now? Am I humble? Am I, am I someone who quickly 
humbles himself before others, humbles himself before the Lord? Or am I someone who, who, who is known for their pride? You don't think so, but you are. You always have to be right. You're always the person who, who, who knows better than everyone else. And if that's the case, then even this morning, I would pray that God would humble you before it's too late. Before we get, so before we get into the text, let me just pray for us, that God would help us, and then we'll get into it. Lord, we thank you for the text that we're about to read this morning. We thank you that, Lord, you are the author of it, that, God, we are not the authority, that you are the authority. And, God, I would pray even this morning, you who knows every heart here today, that, God, you would have your way in our hearts. God, we are, uh, we are told in Jeremiah that our hearts are deceitful above all else. Lord, we, we can easily fool ourselves into thinking that we are so much better than we really are. But God, you have given us your word, you've given us your help, Lord, that we might become more like Christ, that we might become servants. And so, God, we pray that you would use your word this morning to, to humble us and at the same time to give us hope. Lord, it would seem at times as we look around us that it is the prideful who win, that it is wickedness that will reign. But we're reminded again today in your word that that is not the case, that you are on your throne and one day soon all wickedness and all evil will be judged. So God, Lord, help us. Help us to cling to you in all things we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Esther chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and slip up your hand. Maybe you, uh, you rushed out the door, forgot your Bible. That's no problem. The ushers are happy to give you a copy of God's Word. We're going to turn to Esther. And um, if you're wondering where that is, it's just before the Psalms. Sorry, where is it? Job, Nehemiah, Esther, right? Just before Job. And, um, and we're going to be looking at a chunk of Scripture here. So I'm going to read it all first to give us the, the land, uh, the, the kind of the direction of where we're heading. And then, uh, and then we're going to break it down section by section. So Esther chapter 5, verse 9, and we're going to read through chapter 7 to the end. And Haman, this wicked Haman that I've already alluded to, went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. And this idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bixana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, 
who guarded the, their threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. <laughs> you know what I'm trying to say. That's why they just called him Xerxes, right? And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on, king, on, sorry, on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is here standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, with which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his, wife, then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went to, the, went to feast with, with Queen Hester. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It, will be, it shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me of my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he, who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. And as Haman, fell, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, and the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? 
And as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Herbana, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. It's an incredible 24 hours. As we study this morning, we see that God is opposed to the proud. The first thing that we see in chapter 5, verses 9 to 14, is the absurdity of the proud. The absurdity of the proud. Haman has everything going his way. As we, as we started reading, we see that he is joyful. He has every reason to be joyful. Everything that he's ever wanted, he's got. When there was someone who was not singing his praises, he decided and would not bow down to him. It wasn't enough just to take that guy out. He decided that he was going to take, about, take out him and all his people. This is the kind of man that Haman is. And he's been invited to a feast with just the king and the queen. He's joyful. Until what? Until he comes out and he sees Mordecai. I mean, it's just a matter of time before he will be killed. But that's still not enough for him. Consider what Mordecai would have looked like at that point. We read earlier, what, he had he'd been in sackcloth, he'd been fasting, I mean, the guy had been pushed down as far as a as man can be pushed down. And yet again, not enough for Haman. Not enough. And so he goes home and he calls his, his, some friends, his buddies together and, and he's got his wife with him. And well, there's nothing better to talk about than what? Haman. So Haman talks about, listen, guys, you know how rich I am, right? Tells them all about his riches. You know how powerful I am. You know that basically, other than the king, I'm at the top of it all. And even that I have 10 sons. Like, I am a blessed man. I, I have everything. But guess what? I can't be happy. Why, why can't you be happy? Well, there's this guy, Mordecai. He, he just won't sing my praises like everyone else. One man. This guy is literally the second most powerful man in the whole world. But just because this lowly Jew, Mordecai, won't do what he wants. He wants, he, want, he, he, can't, he can't be happy with everything that he has. Like how absurd is pride? Well, what do his friends tell him? They're like, hey, hey, <laughs> time out, reality check. Do you just realize what you just said to us? Like, like you have everything and there's just this one guy like, man, you need to get a grip. Do they say that? No, no. When, when someone is that prideful, when someone is, 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 is that powerful, people tend to just tell that person everything they want to hear. And th- th- this guy, I like what Fox says here. Haman is a case study in that inordinate, inordinate pride and arrogance that conceals a vast and tender ego. Right? Like, like, like he, his ego is like a centimeter thick. Even though he has everything, he has to continually control everything in his life or else his whole kingdom's going to fall down. And that's how he feels. So they say, hey, here's what you do. Build a gallows. Like about as tall as a sign here. No. 
75 feet tall. Well, why would you do that? So that the entire city can see Mordecai hanging up on this pole, which when we think hanging, we think like noose. More than likely, based on Persian culture, it's a very large stake that they would impale someone on and hang them on it. And so that's what they wanted. They're like, hey, this is what you need to do. Get it done and then go to the feast tomorrow and be joyful. Be able to enjoy all this that you have. That's the counsel from his wife and his friends. Conceit is the only disease known to man that makes everyone sick except the man who has it. Isn't that a great, isn't that a great line? Conceit is the only disease known to man that makes everyone sick except to the one who has it. Everybody sees themselves with rose-colored glasses. Everybody thinks that their way is best. Any husbands and wives here? Does that, does that ever happen where, where you see things differently in your home? And, and guess what? If, if pride is allowed to have its day, it's like this. Maybe for days, maybe for weeks, for months. If you don't humble yourself before one another. There's a story told of a minister who was walking along a road and he saw a crowd of boys surrounding a dog. And the minister said, what are you doing with the dog? And one of the children says, whoever tells the biggest lie, he wins the dog. And the minister said, he just was, was credulous. He said, I, I can't believe you guys are doing this. When I was you guys' age, I never told a lie. There was a moment of silence. And one of the little boys said, here, you win the dog. We always see ourselves better than we ought to. As I, as I was praying, I, what I've said about Jeremiah, it tells us that the heart is deceitful above all else. In our pride, we, we want to think that we're always right. We want to think so much higher than ourselves than we really are. And that pride is keeping so many people out of the kingdom of heaven. So many people don't want to see themselves for who they really are. They, they want to be told that they're good. They want to be told that they're fine, they, that, that everyone goes to heaven is what they want to hear the message to be because they, they, they don't want to accept the fact that they need to bow the knee before a holy God and humble themselves. Again, I think about our society that we live in. This upcoming generation that we have right now, they've, this generation has never had more than this generation has. There's so much wealth. There's so many opportunities. And guess what? They're being told in their universities. You need to tear this whole world down. Everything that we've known, we need to tear it down. It's all bad. It's all wrong. And instead, we, we need to be free to do whatever we want to do. It's building into pride over and over again. We're seeing uh, what, I, what we talked about when we were studying the book of Romans, where, where every man has exchanged the glory of God and, and serving the creator and now is serving creation. And what is the fruit of that? We read that in Romans chapter 1, verse 29. What, what, what does a world look like where, where people are beginning to worship creation instead of the creator? 
People are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Does that not describe our society that we live in today? There was, even a couple of days ago when I was young, it would seem that you could have a disagreement and and you could be respectful with one another. Those days are gone. People want to to smash you. They, They want to tear you down. They want to destroy you if you don't agree with their agenda. And we're living it out in our days. And again, I would just say, we need to be on guard, men and women, to not be falling into line with what our world is teaching us. I pray for you as university students that you would not get your heads warped and and, and twisted by professors who are telling you everything that's opposite to what the scriptures say. May God guard you and help you and, and stand strong as men and women and the only way that you can do that is by humbling yourselves before the Lord God and his word on a daily basis. Well, as we've already read, the Lord will humble those who are prideful. God is opposed to the proud. The second thing we see here is the abasement of the proud. The abasement of the proud. Haman is full of anticipation, right? He's so, I can't imagine... I I would say, as we've read the text already, he couldn't sleep that night. He's so excited about the next day. He he can't wait to see Mordecai hung up on that that gallows. And so he's made the the gallows. There's nothing that can stop him. What would think, what 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 would be in his mind at this point? I've already told the king to wipe out the entire Jewish population, and he went along with that. How hard can it be to talk him into killing this one man, Mordecai? It's seemingly impossible to stop what's about to happen. But what happens? Well, God happens. I love the theme here. The God who is not there, crossing out not, right? And what's, what's beautiful about the way the book of Esther is written is it's highlighting that right here is the turning point in the entire book of Esther. It's not when, when Mordecai challenges Esther. It's not when Esther finally steps it up. It's not there. It's here. It's when a king cannot sleep at night. That's the whole turning point of this entire narrative. God is in control. God is the one. Not even the most powerful man in all the world at that point is in control. God is in control. And he can't sleep. And I, I don't know what, what's going on in his mind. Like, maybe, maybe you do this. You're like, get a book. All right? Maybe I can get a few winks in if I get a book. All right? So he just happens to not be able to sleep that night. He just happens to ask for a particular book. He just happens to hear that there's this man, Mordecai, who five years earlier had saved his life. Remember that in Esther 2? When we were studying that? How disappointing it must have been for Mordecai, who like, uh, I just saved this guy's life, and I get nothing. In fact, 
I get the opposite of nothing. I, I, I get, I, I, I get <laughs> not the opposite of nothing. I, I get pain. I get misery because now Haman has turned his attention against me to destroy me. That's what I got for telling the king that everything, that there was two, two guys trying to kill him. But you think maybe God was over that, that little oversight by the king? Well, for sure it was, because guess what? In that day, if you did something like that, the Persian king would reward you. It was self-preservation, right? Hey, hey, anyone who hears anyone trying to kill me, I'd love to hear it. And, uh, and here's what I'll do. I'll reward you when that happens. And so it was a unique circumstance. This was, this was set apart. And so he just happens to read that Mordecai has done this. And he's like, hey, what's been done for this? And they're like, uh, nothing. Another coincidence. Hey, hey, who's out in the court? Oh, it's Haman. Why is Haman there so early? He cannot wait to come and tell, uh, tell the king that he wants Mordecai killed. Right? That's why he's there. He cannot wait. He has no idea of all the coincidences that have happened. I mean, even the strongest skeptic, as they read this, like, uh, seems like someone else is behind all of this. Oh, for sure, God is behind all of it. Every single detail, he's behind all of it. And so he's like, hey, bring on Haman in. All of this is being set up by God, including five years ago when Mordecai heard about the king being uh, this attempted assassination, telling the king, and then the king forgetting it. All of it is under God's hand. Think about God's providence in your life. How is it that you came to salvation? There were many little things in your life that took place that, that, that brought you to the point where you finally opened your eyes to see that Jesus is my Savior, that I am a sinner. That, that, and maybe there were lots of negative things that happened that compiled to the point where you were humbled and you repented of your sin. God is over every detail of our lives. Do we understand that? What's unique about the book of Esther is we're used to seeing God like bring 10 plagues and, and split waters and do miraculous deeds, and he can definitely do that, but he can also cause a king not to sleep one night and open a book and still do miraculous deeds and save a people. And that's a good reminder for you and I today. God is very much at work today in each of our lives. As I've already mentioned in your salvation story, maybe you're here today and you don't know Christ is your savior. I pray that this is the last step before that happens. That God in his providence has brought you here for salvation. Think about other things in your life. How did you meet your spouse? What were the circumstances there? Heather's and I are pretty crazy circumstances. Heather's dad has heart problems. He needs surgery. It makes Heather think, you know, maybe it's time to move from central Washington back closer home. Her dad says, hey, my daughter needs a job. The nurse is like, yeah, we need people. She gets a job. She moves back up to Calgary. She went on a missions trip around the same time with her mom to Nicaragua. 
she gets invited to this church in Rocky Mountain House for this Mission Sunday they're having to, to share, because that's where they were from, the church there, that, to share what had happened on their missions trip on February 13th, 2000. Myself, I had just been in Africa for seven months. My home was in Florida, but I was returning to Canada for seven weeks. My sister had moved to Rocky Mountain House the year before. I said, hey, is there any chance that I could speak at you guys' church? She said, well, let me talk to the pastor. She talks to the pastor and like, hey, we're going to do a mission Sunday. Your brother can speak on that Sunday. And so, for me, I met my beautiful wife on February 13th, 2000, through random circumstances. Our God is so powerful. He's so good. I would hope this morning that we do not miss seeing God at work in our lives through the variety of circumstances that you face every day. Not just in the big things, but in, even in the small things. God is over it all. I love how Job's, uh, Job's puts it here. An unseen power is controlling the reversal of destiny. In fact, in the Septuagint, it reads, the Lord took sleep from the king that night. He's over it all. And so Haman doesn't understand this, but he's picked a fight with God's people. It says in Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And he has picked a fight against those covenant people of God, and now Haman is about to be humbled Maybe before one time, let me just read this quote as well, because from Job's way, I think it's so great, so good. Our God is so great, so powerful, that he can work without miracles through the ordinary events of billions of human lives through millennia of time to accomplish his eternal purposes and ancient promises. It's just not through miracles. It's through this incredible billions of people all over the world, and God's bringing about all of his purposes. And we already know how it ends. We have the book of Revelation. So Haman's now standing before the king. Before he can get a word in about wanting to kill Mordecai, the king says this, what shall be done for the, the king, for the, to, to, what shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? What should we do? And of course, Haman, being the humble man that he is, <laughs> of course he's going to honor me. I'm not sure why, but I know it's about me. And, and it should have kind of, the king may have maybe clued in a little bit based on how he answers. Because he doesn't ask for money. Why? Because he's loaded. He's got all the wealth he can need. He doesn't ask for a more, you know, this person to have a more powerful position. He's already in the most powerful position he can be in. And so he asks for the only thing that he could actually receive, which is the robe of the king to be put on him, the crown of the king to be put on him, to ride on his horse. It would show the public, look how close I am with the king. Look at the, the honorable position that he has given to me. And so this is, what, this is what he asked for. An irony of irony. He gives great advice. And now he will be the nobleman 
to do that for Mordecai. The Bible is so beautifully written. Like, it's so interestingly written. Like, don't you want to know what that scene was as Haman comes up to Mordecai with the king's robe, the crown, and this horse? Like, he had to be seething, so angry. Like, like just like, you know, like vomit coming into the back of his throat. Like, oh, I, I can't believe I'm having to do this. God opposes the proud. How does Mordecai respond? I don't know. Was it was just like, was it worship? First shock, for sure. That'd be shock. But then worship as he's understanding that God's beginning to reverse everything because he, is, he and his people have humbled themselves and fasted and prayed before him. Well, they do this little loop. He cries out that, this is what happens to the man who the king seeks to honor. And he runs home. He runs home in shame, in humiliation. Calls his wife and friends together, the same wife and friends. It's not like, what, 12 hours ago, 15 hours ago, he had talked with. And, 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 and what's so interesting, they're like, oh, Mordecai's a Jew? Oh, yeah, you're done for Now, what's so confusing about that is that he had said, Mordecai the Jew. Yeah, remember, remember I said Mordecai the Jew who like sits at the gate? Like that's the guy I just, like what's happened here? So it's hard to know. We, we don't know for sure, but it's, only, it's like they've had this aha moment. Well, oh yeah, the Jews, we all know this. We all know that they, it doesn't matter what happens to them, they survive. They just keep going. It doesn't matter whether they're, they're stuck in slavery in Egypt or, 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 or whether the, the, their whole nation has been taken down. They, they continue to survive. Baldwin speculates this way. Behind this cold comfort, there seems to lie commonly accepted folk wisdom, perhaps proverbial. The way in which the Jewish people had survived deportations and preserved their identity had not escaped notice. And this in itself witnessed to the power of their God. The deliverance of the individual Mordecai needs to be seen as part of this wider purpose of God to bring glory to his own name and to establish his kingdom. Like, God is for those people. You can't can't wipe them out. And so, yeah, uh, Haman, you're going down. He has been humbled before the Lord. And before he can even get his head wrapped around what's going on, they come and they whisk him off to the banquet. I mean, he's, his head's got to be spinning. I mean, he, he, he had just went to the palace to have this guy killed, and, and now he, he, his counsel from the world is like 100% different than it was the day before. Kind of sounds like the counsel of the world today, right? Flipping and flopping. God is opposed to the proud. Now, Ferguson has a great insight here. He says, there's no word of repentance or acknowledgement by this proud man that he had brought this on himself. And he says this, if God humbles you, pay attention. Now, not everything that goes wrong in our lives is God humbling you. 
But sometimes that is the case. While I was in Romania, one of the pastors was telling me they had they'd went on a vacation uh, to Italy with some friends. They had this plan. They, they're going to stop in Croatia, going to stay there for a little bit, and then they're going to go to Italy. And just like it was this few-week plan, and it was going to be this great vacation. Well, they get to Croatia, and the vehicle breaks down. And this friend of theirs that they had gone with, he had been driving, and it broke down. And they're like, oh, man. So this guy in Romania who sold him the car, like, hey, like, that shouldn't have happened. I'll get you another vehicle. So this guy brings down this vehicle. They get to Italy, and the car breaks down. The same guy driving. They rent now a vehicle. Guess what? Four times. A month later, it came out that that friend had had been having an affair on his wife. God humbles the proud. And I say that here this morning to all of us to remind us that if you're walking in sin, do not be prideful. Do not think that you will get away with it. God if you are his kid, he will reveal the sin, the sin and he will humble you. And hopefully, by God's grace, you will repent before him. But why don't you do that today? Why don't you humble yourself before him today, before destruction comes, as we see at the end here, the annihilation of the proud. The annihilation of the proud well, the stage is set. It's time for the feast. And so they've whisked Haman off to the, to the feast, and he's still like, trying to figure out what has happened. They've had this great meal, and as is the case in Persian culture, you drink afterwards. And so they're, they're having some wine, and, 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 and uh, the king's like, hey, I've already asked you twice. I'm going to ask you a third time. You said yesterday that you would tell me what is your wish? What is your request? You can ask up to half the kingdom. Please, let me know what it is. I, I want to give it to you. Well, the queen has to be very, very careful now with her wish and with her request. As you think about all the dynamics here, the Haman, that Haman was guilty is no doubt. But guess what? The king is also complicit in all of this. He's the one that signed off on the decree. And so now the queen has to word this in such a way that she is able to put guilt upon Haman and let the king be innocent as she reveals her request. And so she says, first, if I have found favor... Would you grant me my life, both me and my people? Her wish is her own life. Her request is the life of her people. And then, as she's explaining her shocking request, she fully identifies with her people, and she tells the king, we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. Why, why this word sold? When I, when I read it, I was like, what, what's she talking about, the sold? 
Well, remember that 10,000 talents of silver were, were promised with the signing of this edict? They had been sold. And she's saying, hey, if it would have been just slavery, I would have just been silent. But we're to be killed. We're to be destroyed. We're to be annihilated. And, and, and she says, I wouldn't have brought it up because I know that it will bring embarrassment to you. It, it could cause you to be shamed. It would be lost to the king. I, I wouldn't have brought it up, but my life and all the life of my lives of my people are in jeopardy. The king, he has no recollection of the death edict. This is crazy. He, he, he doesn't remember it. I, I don't know if it's just anger, but he's just like seething. Maybe it's too many glasses of wine. We, we don't know. We're not exactly sure. But he's like, what? Right? Who, who, who did this? Who's responsible for this? And, and if, we, if we could understand the Hebrew and read the Hebrew, there, it's just like it, it, it embellishes the wrath that is pouring out, the way that it's just like this like statico kind of who did this, that kind of conversation. And, and she responds, the foe and enemy. And then she says, the wicked Haman, the only other man in the room at that time. The king flies off the handle. He goes off to another place. And Haman is left with Esther. Can, can you imagine Haman sitting there? It's like watching like, his whole life flash before him. I, I'm sure at the beginning it was like, your life, queen, is being threatened? I don't... Oh, you can just see like, oh, oh no. Right? And now he's stuck. He can't go with the king because he already, he, it says in the text, he, he knows his life is in jeopardy, that, that, that the wrath is, is coming against him. And so he stays with Esther, which is a major no-no. You do not do that in the Persian kingdom. You do not stay with the harem. If he leaves though, What? You're guilty. You just fled. It's obvious. And so he stays and he begs for mercy. In fact, in the Persian culture, we're thinking about this harem thing, you could not come within seven feet of, of anyone in the harem. And so coincidentally, any coincidences here? No. Under God's providence, the king... The king what? Like, what have we seen in the entire book? He always goes to someone to ask what he should do. So now the, his closest friend, the, his trusted advisor, he can't go to him. And so he's like, I don't know what I'm going to do. He's, he's kind of like, I don't know what he was doing in the other room. But now he comes back. And as he comes back, he sees Haman falling on the couch before the queen at the same time as he comes in. No coincidences. Now, I think, thinking about this whole situation, I don't think he really thinks that he's trying to assault her, but it's super convenient right now to believe that because this will allow him to put all the blame on Haman and to be free himself. Now again, he has been drinking, he's angry. He may have thought, this guy's trying to assault my wife. And so he decrees that this guy would be killed 
And the eunuch, he's like, hey, 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 I just happened to, you know, when I went to pick him up, there's a gallows right at his house. <laughs> and oh, by the way, it was for Mordecai. You know, the guy that you just honored this morning for saving your life? Maybe king, the king, and again, in his like mix of emotions, he's like, maybe he was part of it. But he is killed, and the anger of the king is abated. I mean, what an incredible turn of events. What a shocking story to the prideful. What hope for the humble, for those who have humbled themselves under God. Pride goes before destruction. If we humble ourselves, when God humbles us, then there's hope. But when we do not, then destruction is certain. How many relationships have been destroyed because of sin, because of pride? Even this morning, I wonder if there are some things where you're just like, I just need to let it go. I don't have to be right. It doesn't have to be my way. I, I, I need to be at peace with all men as much as it depends on me. That's what God calls me to do. I, I need to be humble. I need to let justice be in the hand of God. How many people are facing eternal destruction this morning because they're too prideful? I'm too good of a person. Why do I need Jesus dying on a cross for me? I don't need that. I'm going to heaven without him. So many people think that they're too strong to humble themselves and have Jesus as a crutch in their life. Too many smart people, they're not gonna be duped by some religion. I would pray this morning, all of us here who have humbled themselves before God, before it's too late, before destruction comes on you, just as it did for Haman. Haman thought he had everything in control in one bad night's sleep by a king and everything unraveled. That was it. It's all it took. If you're here this morning and you think, I got life under control, I, I understand, I understand in my mind what it takes for me to be saved, and I'm gonna do that someday, I'm gonna bow my knee someday, hear the warning of Haman. Destruction is coming. Job says this, suddenly, without warning, the true destiny of human evil is revealed. Destruction by the long-promised justice of God. On the final judgment day when the truth is revealed, the condemned will finally realize they have no one to blame but themselves. There is judgment coming upon this earth soon. It's coming soon. We don't know the day. It will be like it happened to Haman. Just all of a sudden, destruction will come. The day will come like a thief in the night. And so, if you are unrepentant this morning, I'm begging you, I'm asking you, repent today before it's too late. And then if you are in God, if you have identified 
with God's people, just as Esther identified with God's people, then know with hope today that evil and wickedness will be judged. As you read the book of Revelation, that's the note that gets hit over and over and over again. God's people may be martyred, but they will be the victor. They will win, and God will punish all wickedness. And so as we look around at our world today, I don't know how much time we have left. I think, I think the clock's ticking, don't you think? That's what the Bible tells us. And we need to be ready. So may we hear this morning the word of the Lord to us. Believers, take, char- take courage. Cling to your hope that is in him. All who identify with Christ will be saved. We will one day be with him in glory. While the proud seem to prevail, let us remember that their destruction will come suddenly. So let us be separate from the proud and walk in humility before our God. For he is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let me pray. Lord God, we're so thankful for your word to us this morning, reminding us of your great power, of your faithfulness to your promises, that God, you are for your people and that you will judge all pride, all wickedness, all rebellion against you. God, I would pray for each one here today. God, if there is pride, if there's, if there's wickedness in our heart, God, show us today. Show us right now. God, we cannot, review, we cannot search our own hearts out. Lord, we will deceive ourselves. Lord, would you search our hearts? Would you reveal to us the sin in our hearts? And Lord, may we be quick to humble ourselves. Lord, for those this morning who, who may be watching online or, or here today who have never repented of their sin, God, today, today, God, would you bring them to salvation? Would this be the last step before them putting their faith in you today? God, for your glory, for your honor, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. For more information about our church, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com.